giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Jerry Talton, leader of the machine learning services team at Slack. Jerry, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So how big is the machine learning services team at Slack? So ML services is part of the larger search learning and intelligence group at Slack. Mm -hmm. That team total is about 25 people right now. And then Mm -hmm. ML services itself is about 10. Cool. And you recently completed a big release, right? Gosh, so SLI just released um, its first major update to the search mm-hmm. UX in Slack um, in quite some time. We used to stuff our search results into the tiny sidebar, uh, the, mm-hmm. the side pane, and now you have a whole full screen real estate to, to get to play with things. And that's kind of the, the staging ground for a lot of the search quality improvements that we're hoping to bring in the next couple quarters. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I talk to people internally versus externally you you lose track of when something was released versus when you so is that the way it is at slack were you internally using the changes for some time before the public got to see them yeah we um we dog food everything and it's Mm -hmm. it's it's actually kind of interesting there have been a couple of times in recent memory within slack where we've had internal changes turned on for Mm -hmm. in some cases many many months that we knew we were never going to ship to users. <laughs> and going through that kind of back and forth of like, wait a second, if if we have some super secret mode that gives us some advantage in the product and our users are not going to have it, really we need to turn that off so that we can experience their pain. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's that's happened once or twice recently too. So you've been at Slack for how long now? About a year and a half. And what triggered you joining well, not having any money and needing gainful employment was kind of <laughs> well, Thank the, you for the honest the answer. Sh- no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I had a, a startup before Slack um, that tried to work on problems in data-driven design, and we raised money from Andreessen Horowitz and NEA. And uh, the line, I've told this joke so many times now, it probably isn't funny anymore. The line that I always use is, it was a, it was a very successful startup. Unfortunately, the thing that it was successful at was losing all of our investors' money. Um, and so in the ashes of that, in the aftermath of, of winding down our propose, I spent a couple of months sort of on the floor in my underwear crying. And then eventually it was um, kind of diplomatically suggested to me by my creditors that like having source of income might be a, a good idea for my um, continued existence. And so the, the policy that I followed when I was looking for my next gig was I took all the products and services that we had used at my startup and really, really loved. And those were the places that I applied. And we'd adopted Slack. You know, we were about a 20-person team, and we'd adopted Slack almost exactly a year into our company. And it had just transformed the way that we worked with one another. So for me, it was one of those true believer kind of passion things where Mm -hmm. I thought that I could see a little bit into the future of the way that work was going to be in in two or three years based on the way that we'd used the product before. And did you join right as the lead of the ML team? It was funny. So uh, Noah Weiss founded the team in New York. He founded the office and the team, uh, SLI. And he'd scaled it up to about 10 people and had just gotten to the point where he wanted another manager type running around. Mm-hmm. And so I was the first um, additional manager hire for SLI. 
Now, did you specifically seek out a managerial position? Yeah, it was something that I wrestled with a lot. It's so if you're if you're the CEO of a startup and it fails and you didn't get aqua hired or you know, get to the point where like people knew who you were, which unfortunately was the situation we were in coming out of our propose. Going back on the job market is fascinating. One so Manu Kumar who runs Canine Ventures, I met with him when I was trying to figure out what to do with myself. And he gave me this really great advice. He said, you have to take your resume and you have to cross out CEO and you need to write something like senior product manager instead, because companies don't know what to do with a CEO of a 20 person right. organization. What, what, what does it mean to be a CEO? Were you managing people? Were you leading engineering? Were you doing product? And, you know, my sort of arrogant attitude was I was doing all those things. So I know a little mm -hmm. bit about all of them and a lot about some of them. So I was very on the fence whether I should try to look for something that was more on the product side of the world or whether I should try to look for something that was more on the engineering side. But the great thing about Slack and in particular SLI is that it was sort of both. We were trying and continue to try to figure out how to use data and machine learning to build new product affordances that let people get kind of this exponential value out of the data that they put into Slack. Um, and that just seemed kind of like a perfect fit for me. Building on that of what your team is trying to do, do you go into it thinking, well, this is a research. We don't know if this is going to work. We don't know what's going to come out of it. We're just exploring what might be possible versus we want to make this our product do this and we are going to ship this. It's not research. It's such a good question. What you just asked to me speaks to kind of the central challenge of doing this sort of work today. And if I have like a superpower, I think one of my superpowers is that I was fortunate enough to spend some time at Stanford and kind of hang out on the periphery of the D school down there. And it's very hard to go to Stanford and like get a degree in computer science and not get design thinking sort of beaten into you. Mm -hmm. And I'm still I'm still surprised as I go out in the world and I give talks and I ask people about how important design thinking is to them. To me, that's sort of the master algorithm for figuring out these thorny problems, because to your point. You have this chicken and egg problem when you try to build data-driven products. On the one hand, the space of things that you could potentially build is just vast, right? You could do this, you could do that, you could improve this flow a little bit, you could try to provide this functionality. Sorting through all of that and figuring out what the right thing to build is really hard. And you don't know what you will be able to build until you know what your data supports. And so... You have to kind of marry the UX that you produce to what actually exists in the data that you have access to. But the problem is, is that you don't know what your data will support until you've built the machine learning model. Mm -hmm. And you don't know which machine learning model you should build until you know exactly what you're trying to do in the product. So you have this terrible kind of complex, wickedly hard design problem where you have these two constraints that you have to sort of jointly optimize and go back and forth between. And that really is the story of, I think, our team's life for the last year and a half. It's trying to bounce back and forth as fast as we can from saying, look, if we could put this in the product, this is what it would look like. And then on the other hand, can we build the model that would actually support this? Well, maybe not quite that, but we can get something that will do this. Now, what worlds open up with the ability to predict this thing and so on and so forth? And so it's just, it's incredibly hard. And I feel like the first, whenever I get to a new place, 
I always write the Don Knuth quote, premature optimization mm -hmm. is the root of all evil up on the wall. And it's funny, you can stare at that every day and still sort of ignore it. But we spend a lot of time trying to do the simple things with simple models and simple investigations into the data just to get a sense of kind of where we think it will land so that we can go in and, and think deeply about product. Is there anything where you feel like you were surprised by either the success of something you tried or the failure of it? Like you really thought the data was going to give you one thing and it turned out to, to be something different or... Yeah, I'll give you one concrete example. You know, if you if you kind of look at machine learning right now as a field, what you see, especially sort of in the academic realm, is there's just this tremendous interest in everything related to neural network architectures. And if we're being very honest with ourselves, I think there have been a couple of results in the last year that have kind of shown that this is a bit of a hype curve thing going on. Like Google mm -hmm. had this great paper where they showed that many of the like loss functions for GANs are all actually equivalent and people were just publishing hyperparameter tuning. And if you ran any of the models enough time with enough random restarts, you get exactly the same thing. And so not to say that all of that work was wasted, but maybe it, it, it didn't have the impact that the people who worked on it had hoped. So we have this joke in SLI, we say we do deep counting because <laughs> more or less what we do is we count things and then we compare them to other things that we've counted. Right. But the one area where I think it's just impossible to argue with the results of this sort of modern vent of ML right now, at least for what we do, is in the embedding space. We've looked at like training word embeddings in Slack and they just work really well. And a lot of these problems before that were kind of very difficult and required very careful architectural choices, you kind of just throw a bunch of text at something like Word2Vec or um, Facebook has this great framework called Starspace that, that we love. And you just, you just get out magic, more or less. The canonical example way back in the original publications is that these, these embedded spaces, if you take the embedding of the word king and you subtract the embedding of the word man, and you add the embedding of the word woman, you end up on a point that's very close to the word queen. And the fact that these networks can learn these relationships about things like that without being told anything, just being given these sort of great gobs of text, um, that's really powerful. And it's given us, um, we, we use those signals now in a lot of different ways in the machine learning models that we train because they're just so flexible and you know, in this modern world of TensorFlow and, and frameworks like that, like very easy to roll your own. So I have to admit, I don't know anything about the Slack architecture and behind the scenes at Slack. But I, my question is from a machine learning angle, like how conducive is the total Slack architecture to to getting that? Or is the way that most of what you're doing, are you off in another silo where you're pulling data from the main Slack architecture or do, are you feeding into the direct pipelines and doing a lot of stuff in real time? Well, we're fairly fortunate in that real time for us isn't, um, you know, if we're off by a few seconds, if we don't have the most up-to-date data on the level of, mm -hmm. I don't know, the last minute or something like that, generally that's probably okay. Like a great example, a great way to think about this is um, if you just imagine like search as a problem, which is something that we're trying to make better and better in Slack. If you're searching for something that appeared in the channel 10 minutes ago, we probably would like to get a signal about like who's reacted to that particular message in the last 10 minutes. If a thousand people have reacted to it and like we happened to miss that, we might rank your result 
in a way that isn't perfect. But mm -hmm. there's there's some sort of like tolerance for latency there. So many of the things that we do, many of the models that we train, if they run on a nightly basis, you know, that's mm -hmm. more or less fine. And if for some reason we you know can't get the data or there's an error, we can just kind of go back to yesterday's and that's also probably okay. Mm -hmm. The great thing about Slack from sort of a product and architecture sense is if you think about it kind of just at a surface level, Slack seems like a great collection of lots and lots of text messages. And that's true for sure. But the cheating that we get to do more or less is that set, that collection of text messages is actually highly structured right? We have all of this metadata that's just baked right into the communication that we can use to make inferences about who you were talking to and what you were talking about and who read the thing and so on and so forth because we have channels and we have reactions and we have replies and we have clicks and you can mention people. And so there's all of this rich metadata around the information and that has bootstrapped a lot of our machine learning work because we can make simplifying assumptions. If two messages are in the same channel they're not necessarily about exactly the same thing but there probably is some common thread that ties them together those assumptions have helped a lot um, in kind of building out the architecture so how much machine learning work had you done prior to joining slack it's an interesting question um i ostensibly got my phd in computer graphics mm -hmm. but i was a terrible student for a very long time um, until I took my first computer graphics course. Gosh, I guess this was probably back in 2002. And uh, That's funny because for me, it was the opposite. I was a good student until I took my first computer <laughs> graphics course. For me, it was, I, my mom likes to tell this story. She can remember me in elementary school and I think I got my first ever B in math and she was aghast. She said, you know, Jerry, what happened? And I said, well, they want me to memorize these multiplication tables and like everybody has a calculator. I don't know why I should have to do it. And that ignorant mentality carried on, I think, in my life for a long time in calculus. It was why am I being forced to memorize all of these terrible, you know, derivative mm -hmm. rules because I can just look them up in a book and... I read Feynman and he said that he looked them up in a book when he needed to know them. So computer graphics was the first time when I took a, a class and I was like, oh my goodness, I understand why you need the math now. It makes it, people have been telling me about linear algebra and they've telling me, you know, about Green's theorem and all this stuff. And now I finally get it. I finally understand why I need that stuff. And so graphics was sort of what pulled me in deeper to computer science. That was what convinced me that I wanted to go to grad school. And I loved that you could, uh, you know, the, the best way for me to take information that I have in my brain and put it in someone else's brain is always to, to show you a picture. And so that for me was a very powerful thing. You could work on something for a long time and then you could go home and you could show your grandparents, here's a picture of what I did. You were working in compilers or networking or something, that, that wouldn't happen. So graphics was, was what I was the most excited about when I was in school and, and, and why I went to grad school. But I was very fortunate and it was just dumb luck that about the time that I was really getting into my PhD, computer science was sort of undergoing that shift where everything interesting that was happening was turning into machine learning, kind of mm -hmm. by hook or by crook. So I, I spent a bunch of time in my dissertation working on procedural modeling tools. For instance, if you're trying to build a massively multiplayer online video game and you need a bunch of houses, it's going to mm -hmm. cost you a lot of money to pay somebody to go like build all of those for you in Maya or whatever the 
cool kids tool is these days. But what would be amazing is if you could get an artist to make you two or three and say, go figure out the generative process that built these and make me a bunch more of them that are different, but possess all the important characteristics of those houses that I made. And so that was what my dissertation was about, was, was figuring out algorithms that could do that, generalized from a small set of examples. And it just introduced me in kind of this very backwards way to a lot of the really cool concepts that ended up being important in machine learning sort of in the, in the time thereafter. And so that was sort of my segue into the field. And then when we started Apropos, which was based on some dissertation work by my longtime collaborator, Ranjitha Kumar, it was just another example of we have all of this data and we want to solve predictive problems and so we, we just kind of figured it out as we went along. So I always think my career is very interesting. You know, relatively speaking, like getting a PhD in computer science is not generally a good idea um, unless, you, unless you really want... Unless you want to yeah, teach, right? Unless, exactly. If you, want to, if you want to go somewhere and be a faculty member, then it's mm. necessary. But I think... I'm just making this up, so I'm probably going to say this horribly wrong. But I, I, the last thing that I recall is like if you're a new college grad and you go to Google, you start at level three. And if you get a PhD, which takes you six years, you start at level four. And if you went to Google at level three, you could get promoted to level four in 18 months. And so that like the <laughs> mathematics of that just don't work out. Um, so it's it's not financially speaking, like the best idea in the entire world. But the the power that it has given me, which I think is very valuable in my career, is I can look at people doing very complicated things and I can say, why don't we just try linear regression? Mm -hmm. And they are more inclined to listen, I guess, because, <laughs> <laughs> because I can always pull the, uh, no, 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 Mr. Talton is my father. You can call me Dr. Talton. So that part of it has been really valuable. Um, and that notion of like doing the absolute simplest thing, but understanding mathematically where that lands you, that, that I think is something that I, I kind of you know, picked up in grad school and carried on afterwards and has served me fairly well. So what is the biggest challenge that you personally face on a day-to-day -day basis in your work? Oh, gosh. I'm reticent to, to say this because it's going to make it sound like the, the team is, is terrible, which is exactly the opposite. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to work with some of the, the most talented and high EQ people um, that I have ever met in my entire career. And I promise I'm not getting paid extra for saying this. Slack is really filled with those kinds of people, which is amazing. But it's astonishing you know, when you make that transition to being a manager, however you do that, I don't think anybody can tell you, or if they do, you won't listen, how quickly things about people will immediately become your entire world. I had always sort of assumed, oh, well, you know, I mean, if you have six or seven direct reports, that probably means you only get to code two days a week. And that is just not the way of the world. You know, you've had some people far more experienced than me on your podcast to talk about this. But it's it's always so interesting that um, that transition that you make and how worthless you feel when you're first starting out because your days used to be filled with producing artifacts that you were reasonably certain had value. And now, you know, my typical day is I might have four or five meetings, I might write a document, I might pop into a discussion and gather some information and try to make sure that the decision that's being made is the right one. And you just go home at the end of the day and you're like, what did I, what did I do all day long? Like what, mm -hmm. what use, what use am I in the world? But, um, I took this great class from Michael Deering who, uh, 
runs the venture capital firm Harrison Metal in San Francisco. And Michael was an executive at, at eBay and at Disney for many years. And he teaches this class called general management. And it's fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. But the thesis kind of behind it is that history has been littered with like brilliant entrepreneurs who were never actually able to get anything done. And the difference between the brilliant entrepreneurs who were able to get things done and those that weren't were people who had good managers around to take that creative spark of innovation and actually turn it into a repeatable, reputable, you know, functioning business. Mm -hmm. And so I think the most important thing in software is always people. And that's, that's mostly what my day is about. So you took that course. Are there other things that you've done along the way to, to try to get better at that? Yeah, I had an unusual advantage, which I didn't, I didn't appreciate at the time. It was just very frustrating in the moment. But I, I always say that I learned to manage when I was a grad student. Mm -hmm. I was working on research problems that were too big and had too many moving parts for just one PhD student to go sit in a corner somewhere and write down some math and then produce a paper. So in order to get any work done, you sort of needed these teams of, you know, maybe two or three other students, a PhD students and a master's student and a couple of undergrads, and then the faculty member. And the, the phenomenal thing that I wish I could replicate for everybody about learning to manage in that experience was that you had absolutely no power. You couldn't, you couldn't fire anybody. You couldn't yell at them. You couldn't demand that someone do something because you had absolutely no power or authority over anything. And that, I think that was a phenomenal kind of starting point for establishing early ideas about what management is because, you know, not to be crass about it, but it is certainly in tech these days, like, if one company treats someone poorly, another one will just hire them, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody is sort of in some sense working for you out of the goodness or working with you out of the goodness of their own heart. And I think just uh, approaching things from that perspective has been really valuable. I also think even though I, I kind of like CEOs who went back to join large tech companies get kind of a bad rep because they, they have a reputation for being impossible to get along with and all of these things. I think being a CEO even though, you know, we'd only raised a couple of million dollars and I was only responsible for 15 or 20 people. I think that was a fantastic experience as well, because if you don't do your job, the checks don't get written. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in like if the company fails sort of ways, but I mean, like if you screw up and payroll doesn't run properly and people can't like pay their daycare providers, understanding that viscerally in a way where there isn't some giant entity that just produces money behind you that will kind of handle all those things. I think that helped make me very cognizant of like the responsibility that you have to take care of people. And I think the other thing that it that it really did was, you know, when you're in a startup, especially if you're if you're the founder, essentially, although no one likes to come out and say this, what you're saying to people is work for me for less money than you could be making other places so that if we are successful, I can become very rich. And I mean, uh, hopefully too, you know, you generate wealth for your employees and things, but the, the equity split is always, you know, an order of magnitude between the founders and the first employees. So if anybody's going to get rich, it's going to be the founders first. And that it's just such an interesting framing, right? Like when you have that in the back of your head that like, hey, you know, my uh, director of data is really upset with me right now, but I have asked her to come here and try to make me rich. <laughs> like, let me not 
fly off the handle and say the first thing that comes into my head, or let me for a moment take my own feelings about whatever this contentious thing is and set them aside and try to have empathy for someone that is in this situation that is unusual and difficult. You know, you just very quickly learn that it's servant leadership. You have to be in a situation where you are putting the needs of everyone else above yours if you want an organization at that stage to function well. And it is a little bit different at larger companies, but I still like kind of having that, you know, bias going into it, I guess I would mm-hmm. say. I think Bob Sutton's book, The No Asshole Rule, is fantastic. That's that's one everybody should read. I think Ed Catmull's book, Creativity Inc., is another great one about what management sort of looks like in highly creative organizations and mm-hmm. how you have to struggle with balancing efficiency and like what it means in a team that's trying to do things that nobody else has ever done before. There's a lot of fantastic stuff out there too, but it's very experience is king in some extent. Mm-hmm. Was there any ways in which your prior experience as a CEO caused trouble early on? <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe not even early on, maybe now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I certainly think that um, it's interesting. I was talking with an with a engineering director at Slack recently, had this great metaphor that I, I really liked about thinking about the balance between being a highly principled and a highly practical individual. And if you dial the knob all, not that it's, you know, it's a false dichotomy to say that it's a right, linear, right. linear interpolation, but just the purpose of the discussion. If you dial the knob all the way to the right on the principled side of things, that might be a good thing from a perspective of being able to like wake up every morning and feel good about yourself, but it's very hard to get anything done in the world. And one of the reasons why is because any fight that you see that you think you want to go fight, if you are highly principled, you will say, yes, this fight is important. I must go fight it. Mm -hmm. And the piece of advice that this director gave me, which I really like, is if you're a highly principled person and you are trying constantly to right wrongs and make things better across an organization, probably the important thing that highly principled people don't ask themselves is, am I the right person to fight this fight? Sometimes something might be screwed up, it might be absolutely the right thing to do to try to go fix it. But maybe you, in my case, maybe mm-hmm. me, maybe I am not the right person to advocate for that thing. Maybe I'm not the right person to go challenge that directly. Maybe what I need to do is find the other set of people that I can influence so that they will go fight the fight. And that has always been a little bit of a balance for me because when you're the CEO, you are the right person to fight every fight inside mm-hmm. your company because you are, you know, ultimately responsible for everything. So I think thinking about that balance a lot. Um Slack is, you know, a thousand-ish people right now. It's not a huge company and it is an extraordinarily well-run company from end to end, but it's easy to to walk into any organization and be like, "Well, why is this like this? Why is this like right. that?" And trying to I think find the right balance for a lot of those things. That's been effort on my part at least. I'm trying to think about how I approach these problems. And I think ThoughtBot and my company have been highly principled, but we have the saying of like strong opinions loosely held. Yes. And I think that that really does come down to pragmatism. Like you need to sort of have, especially as as CEO, you need to feel strongly and to say, here's what we believe and here's how what we're going to do. And And I think probably in your position as a CEO who had to talk to investors and could do fundraising, like you have to hold these things up, even if like they're sort of extreme, but then you need to be willing to realize when it's not working or when you've learned something new and be able to change really quickly. I could not possibly agree more. 
and I can I can imagine. I, to be honest, I've never worked in. <laughs> so I worked in a, a few companies before starting ThoughtBot, but I've been doing this for fifteen years. So I'm interested in, in your experience. Like when you decided to join Slack, you were finding a place that you believed in. And I can imagine if you had went to a place where you didn't believe in it, it would be, it would have been difficult to sort of put on the airs of here's what I'm doing and here's what I care about in an organization where you didn't actually care about the same things. Completely. And one of the things that was kind of important for me and this is unbelievable arrogance in retrospect, but um, the only thing that really matters in terms of like running a company, the last company that I ran was a colossal failure. Like we didn't make any money. And if you don't make any money, it doesn't matter how good you are at any of the other things that you set out to do, unfortunately. But one of the things that was really important for me when I was trying to think about the next place to go was I felt like I had been very thoughtful. I had figured some things out and we had done a lot of things right at Apropos in terms of creating an environment where people could thrive and do their best work on and I was really proud of that and, and sad to see it go. And so I wanted to go somewhere where I felt that the person leading the next thing, you know, was more thoughtful than me. And and of course, mm. they had to be better at the at the making money thing, which is the hardest thing by far. But also, you know, was cared about all those things and, and had their head screwed on straight. And one of the things that I, I love so much about Stuart, our CEO at Slack, and of course, like the founding story of Slack is just crazy. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, you should go read it. Um, Stuart Butterfield is the only person that I know who has managed to fail twice at starting video game companies and create mm-hmm. two of the most important startups of like the last two decades. Um, so the moral of the story is if Stuart ever asks you to invest in a video game company, you should say yes. <laughs> but one of the things that I really like about him is, and it's it's kind of pervasive in the way that, you know, he talks within the company and externally is, is not by any means to say that he isn't brilliant and, and like hasn't worked his butt off for decades but he really acknowledges that like there is just a strong component of luck in where slack ended up and so rather than thinking about the company and the organization as this thing where there's this manifest destiny for him to go explain to everyone the way that it should be and impose his vision on the world but a certain extent of it is we just have found ourselves in this amazing situation, right? This once in a generation situation. And like, how did it happen? I mean, the stars aligned to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And we do the company sees the opportunities and the founders did an amazing job. But to some extent, it was just, we just got lucky. And now the responsibility isn't become very entitled as a result of that luck. It is make sure that we don't screw it up so that we give back kind of, commensurate with this luck that came upon us. And that way of thinking about the world is so refreshing for somebody um, as successful as our founders are. But I I find it very inspiring and it makes it very easy to want to follow where they lead. Mm -hmm. One thing that's really important to me that I don't think gets talked about enough in the tech industry and whenever I give talks, I always put up at the end, I put up, I kind of try to pull a Steve Jobs and do a, and one more thing. And then I take the last two minutes. And regardless of what the talk is about, I always talk about this. Um, you know, we, we live in kind of this amazing time, especially if you work in technology, right? The, the wealth creation is just off the charts. I, I've seen that sketch. I can't remember which comedian it was, but somebody ranting about how out of whack our expectations are when we're like sitting on an airplane complaining yeah. that the Wi-Fi isn't fast enough, right? Like, you know, viscerally, my grandfather was born in 1921 in Big Island, Virginia, and he worked at a paper mill for the first 20 years of his life because that was what you did. It wasn't because he had an affinity for paper. It was just, you were in Big Island, Virginia. That's what you did. 
And so we live in like in this amazing world and we literally have self-driving cars and we have the internet in our pocket and you know now we're going to have augmented reality and all of these kinds of things. And I think one of the things that I have seen in my career is because of that, and, and also we make all this money, um, because of that in technology, I think people feel guilty sometimes admitting that life is still very hard. And I wish that as an industry, we would do more to kind of recognize that like life can be very hard despite the fact that we have all this privilege and we have all these opportunities and we live in this amazing world like life is still very difficult and i have i have seen a lot of people who ostensibly are extremely successful struggle and you know in some cases lose the struggle and if there was a, a message or a thing that i wanted to send out to people listening to the podcast um i think we need to do a better job letting people know that it's okay to ask for help that it's okay for everything in your life to seem from an external perspective like it's amazing and still sometimes to just be overwhelmed and and have a hard time getting out of bed and it's not a deficiency of character it's not a weakness this is the human condition this is the world and so many of the smart people that i know struggle in those ways and almost none of them ever feel comfortable talking about it in public mm -hmm. i think we we need to do a better job as a community because we have a responsibility to one another to help um, as much as we can. And, you know, probably everybody that, that ever listens to me talk, I always say, there's always somebody in your life that would be happy to help if you just ask them for it. And sometimes the nicest thing that you can do for the people that care about you is just reach out to them when you need a hand. Mm -hmm. As a leader, what do you do to set up that environment for your team to be able to help each other or to for you to support them and everyone to feel comfortable and, and have a safe space for working on those kinds of things. I'm a big believer in the notion, you know, one-on-ones at this point, hopefully everybody that manages people does regular one-on-ones and those are the employees meeting and I, I make it a point as much as I can to try to discourage people from talking about work. It's hard because, you know, there's a line of, of like what constitutes, you know, appropriate things to talk about and not. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, there's two things that you can do. I think the first one is, is that you can role model and you can just, you know, you can be open and authentic about yourself. Like... People are not expecting their managers or their leaders to be these, you know, perfect paragons of, of power and, and flawless they're individuals. Not, no, they're not. You're off the hook. Oh, so I think good. I think vulnerability in some extent is a powerful tool. People are so big on analogical reasoning. As soon as they see, wait a second, this person had that problem. I have that problem too, but they're okay. That must mean that that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm a big, I'm going to sound like a nut. I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan and I love The West Wing. And there's a great episode in The West Wing where one of the characters is telling the other one this, this story and he goes, a guy falls down a hole and he's trapped down in the hole and a priest comes by him. The guy says, help, I'm trapped. Can you help me? And the priest throws down a, a, a Bible and leaves. That doesn't help the guy. Next, a doctor comes by and the guy shouts up and he goes, you know, I'm trapped in the hole. Can you help me? And the doctor throws down a prescription. That doesn't help. And then the guy's friend walks by. And he screams up, help, I'm trapped in the hole. And his friend jumps down with him. And his friend says, wait a second, now we're both trapped. That was a stupid thing to do. And his friend goes, ah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. And it's kind of, you know, a cute little story. And please mm -hmm. for don't for a moment think that I'm knocking on medicine or religion. But I just think that notion of being able to deeply empathize with another human being is one of the most powerful forces so trying to make it very clear 
that these kinds of things are absolutely appropriate material for a one-on-one or a workplace conversation because they are, especially in a world where we want people to bring their more authentic selves to work. And also um, being unafraid to, to, to show vulnerability and to, mm-hmm. to role model for the people that you work with that struggling with these things and having these. It's not, the goal is not to never have anything be wrong with your life. The goal is to be able to overcome all of the things that will constantly be wrong with your life because that's that's what life is. I think Churchill said that, um, oh, now I'm going to screw up the quote, so I won't even try. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, success is moving from disappointment to disappointment without loss of enthusiasm, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's one of the lessons you learned as as being CEO. There you it's go. certainly a lesson that I've learned. That's exactly right. Yes, indeed. The other thing that I would say too is, you know, I'm so I'm a tall, white, cisgendered, upper middle class dude, uh, and so I, I speak from this position of great privilege, and I, I, I probably. Also, this is, I'm not an expert in this thing, so I, you know, machine learning, we can talk, but this it is just biases and anecdotes that I've collected over the mm-hmm. years, but. One of the things that I think is so critically important that I see organizations wrestling with time and time and time again that I feel like I have some insight about is just this very kind of banal commentary on diversity, which is that taking a team that is not diverse and making it diverse is so hard. It is such a difficult thing to do. And like, if you're in that situation, you just got to go do it um, and Mm -hmm. don't come whine to me about it. But the thing that is so much easier is taking a team that starts diverse and maintaining it over time. And that was the thing that we did at Our Propose that was so wonderful. You know, a majority of the founders were women and we had people from all sorts of different ethnicities and backgrounds and all those things. And as soon as you had that baked into a team of five or six people, maintaining the sort of balance that you would hope to see when the team gets to 20 ends up being almost a non-issue. And But if you start with five or six white guys, and now you're trying to think about how do you add the first woman or the first person from a different socioeconomic background, it's so hard to flip that bit and to get momentum behind it. And it's just kind of mathematics. But I wish people would take that to heart. Maintaining what you already have is very easy and flipping the bit in the other direction is very hard. And so if you're aspiring to do something where you hope one day that you will have the kind of company or the kind of organization where hopefully we all want to work, you can't put that off. You can't wait. You have to start from day one or you'll you'll just be pushing a, a stone uphill for a long time. Yeah, I... Um... I made this point, and I'll call it, it was episode 256 of the podcast. I was looking it up while you were talking because this was the episode where we had someone else host and they asked me a bunch of questions. And one of the questions at the end, I think it was actually from the audience. It was a live recorded. And um, they asked what my biggest regret was. And I, I was being truthful. That's my biggest regret is that I didn't, I didn't even know enough at the time that I was making the mistake, but in hindsight, it's so obvious and it was coming entirely from a place of privilege and not understanding what what the problem was. Almost everything that is bad about ThoughtBot or we learned from or that we overcame, I wouldn't necessarily change it because we are the kind of company we are today because we went through that hard thing. That's the one thing that I wish 
that I didn't do or that the mistake we didn't make because we've learned nothing from it. Mm-hmm. We've only just hurt ourselves as a company from starting by five white guys. And fixing it now is very difficult. So yes, if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and hear the the, the question in context too. But um, yeah. So anything that you can share that's sort of you're excited about, either something that you're learning new or something that you're working on that you can share? Well, I'm very excited. We hired about six months ago an official engineering manager, my peer, to lead our our search team. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that is coming out of them um, in the next six months, I think, is, is just phenomenal. Slack, we we have kind of an unusual search setup in the sense that our read to write ratio is is very different than most mm-hmm. other kind of large scale enterprise search systems. And so kind of figuring out the fundamental technology to make all of that work and scale took a little while. And we're sort of exiting that page now. And now we're getting to like the fun part, in my opinion, which is where we can go back and actually try to start bringing that like Google style search experience to Slack. And so it may not, I mean, it's probably not a three month thing, but in the next six months or the next year, I think your ability to ask Slack questions and retrieve information and discover things you know, in your team, in your workspace, in your organization is going to get better by like a couple of orders of magnitude. That's one of the things that I'm most excited about right now from a work perspective, because I think um, getting really good at that, making it as fast and easy as possible to find the information that you're looking for, as Slack captures more and more of just everything about how we work and how we communicate, mm-hmm. making it easy to retrieve that and find exactly the most relevant thing for whatever question you have at any point in time. I think that's a superpower that we're going to deliver to millions and millions of people. So I'm super excited about that. And I know from talking to a lot of people, machine learning is a big deal right now. A lot of people are interested in it. Do you have any advice for people who are you know, they either have a computer science degree or at least they're a working developer, but not in machine learning. There's the obvious resources out there in terms of the the Stanford courses and that kind of thing that are online. But is there anything maybe that people aren't super aware of that you would say, hey, here's my advice to you? I I will use this word very carefully. Um, I think that I am a bit of a bigot about machine learning, hopefully not a bigot about other things. Um, my advice, and and this is a, a strong opinion, strongly held <laughs> over, <laughs> over many decades of work, um, but it is a very unpopular opinion, is that people in this space tend to vastly overcomplicate relatively simple things. And so if I was someone trying to get into machine learning um, right now, I would resist the temptation to jump to the forefront of knowledge and I would spend a lot of time learning things that don't even really sound like machine learning, but are just simple, basic math. Um, Pedro Domingos has this great paper, A Few Useful Things to Know, about machine learning that was published in, in CACM a while back. And his book is also excellent. But he lays out the subset of things that are obviously true that people forget all the time. And one of them, for instance, is that simple models with more data beat more complicated models with less data. So if you have a choice between trying to do some extra engineering to increase the mathematical complexity of your model or getting 10 times more training data and throwing it at the system that you already have, 
you should do the latter every single time until you are absolutely convinced that you cannot make your current thing better just by giving it more data. Another thing that I always tell people when they wrinkle their nose is the right first machine learning model is always a heuristic. It's something that you sit down and you say, well, we're going to look at this data and like probably if it's like this, we should do that. And probably if it's like that, we should do this. That is what you should do first to validate that there is even enough pattern in your data to learn anything from it. You should replace your heuristics with more complicated rules only when the heuristics get so complex that you can't maintain them anymore. That's Mm -hmm. the trigger for when you should go try to learn something. It's very important to remember, like, even huge companies, even if you look at Google and you look at, like, their AdsWords model, I don't know if it's still like this today, but for years, it was just a logistic regression. Like, maybe now they've replaced it with some neural thing and they run it on TPUs, I don't know. But the power that you can get out of just fitting a line against Mm -hmm. a bunch of data points. I'll I'll rant, I'll say one more thing. Pedro Dominguez, who has that great article, he has another paper that's um, about 10 years earlier, and he looks at Naive Bayes, which is one of the simplest machine learning models that you can train and deploy. You don't even really train it. You just count probabilities and do a division. There you go, deep counting again. And the the thing about Naive Bayes, the reason why it's not good is because it assumes as a, a, a precondition to the model that all of your parameters are, are independent. So if you have a dependency between two of your features, like for instance, if you're both tall and this other thing takes some special action, you know for a fact that Naive Bayes cannot take into account those sorts of dependencies. So it's this very simple model. It's so simple that it, it seems stupid because the world, of course, is filled with dependencies. And Professor Domingos has this great paper where he proves that for a huge class of problems with very well understood and complex conditional dependencies between the variables, Naive Bayes still gives you the optimal solution. Mm -hmm. And this seems counterintuitive, but the reason why is because many times if we're trying to classify things, we're just trying to get a splitting plane that sits between one set of points and another set of points, it doesn't actually matter that much exactly which plane we draw as long as we get one that splits them. And so, again, this notion of do the simplest possible thing until you have convinced yourself that you cannot use the simple thing anymore, and only then kicking and streaming should you sort of be, you know, let yourself be dragged towards more and more complexity. That is my number one piece of advice. I feel like I could shout that from the rooftops and people still wouldn't listen because training a recursive neural network with a long short-term memory and (laughs) dropout and all these other things is just, it's too much fun. But yeah. I've just never, I've never seen a team that couldn't benefit from simplifying their machine learning infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also need that to establish a baseline, yes. right? Like, like if you don't establish a baseline, you don't know whether the new thing you're doing is good at all. That is so true. And sometimes that's a useful cognitive trick, I think, is don't tell Mm -hmm. yourself we're going to do linear regression because we think it'll actually work. Just tell yourself you're doing it so that you can establish a baseline and then go and try and beat it. And once you've beat it, swap in the other thing. But you might be surprised by how long it takes. Thanks so much for uh, sharing. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. If people want to learn more or follow along with you or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that? They can follow me on Twitter at at Jerry Talton, and they can follow me on the web at jerrytalton.net. Thank you very much, Jerry. 
Have Thanks a great so day. Much. Same to you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.